Philippians chapter 2, probably one of the greatest dangers facing the church today is the attack on its authority, the Word of God. I don't think any of us would argue with that. You take away the Bible, why are we here, right? Um, but you'd probably come up with other things. You could probably say the world, sin, the devil, um, apathetic believers, kind of a general coldness to the things of God in our society, uh, indifference to absolute truth. Um, our society seems to shun the truth that God puts forth in His Word over and over again. And His standards of righteousness are constantly being uh, kind of worn down uh, to where they're almost attainable to the normal person each and every day. And uh, I think all those things are, are serious problems that come against the church, but I think one of the the most serious problems that can come against any church is what not comes from without, but what comes from within. Uh, I think one of the dangers that the church faces and uh, should be feared on an equal basis is its unity. All those things that we, we, we just mentioned, whether it's the world's sin, the devil, uh, uh, coming against the authority of God's Word, all those things can, I think, disrupt and weaken and, and kind of pose a serious problem for the church. But uh, there's something to be said when within the church there begins to kind of uh, brew a discord of of disharmony and, and, and conflict and division. Um, if you turn over to 2 Corinthians, I just want to read a, a verse out of there, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And look at verse 20. Because Paul really had this on his heart when he wrote, his last letter to the, the Corinthian church, and he expressed a, a fear of sins that destroy unity within the body of Christ. And he says there, for I, uh, for I fear lest when I come I shall not find you as such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. Lest there be contentions, and he begins to list off these things, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults, lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. And so he, you see there are two classifications that concerns Paul as far as the 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 church. First of all, he in verse 20, he talks about the unity of the church. He lists things such as anger and, and disruptions and disputes and slanders, all these things going on. But then he also fears, I think, those things that destroy the purity of the church. And he talks about immorality and things like that. Um, and I think that the Philippian church faced the danger of, of discord and division among their ranks. They were a pretty good church. They had a lot of things in order. 
But in chapter 4, verse 2, he kind of talks about this conflict that two people have within the body, Euodia and Syntyche. And he, Paul has to bring it up because they weren't dealing with it. And the one thing we have to understand is disunity is a real potential danger in any church. And when it causes discord and division, it does not obviously glorify the Lord at all. And that was a, a concern that Paul had in a lot of his letters. In Romans chapter 15, verses 5-7, to he wrote to the, the, the church at Rome, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. So that with one accord, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore accept one another just as Christ also has accepted us for the glory of God. And to the, the, the Corinthians in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, he says, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. And uh, as we read in 2 Corinthians in verse uh, chapter 17, verse 11, he says, Rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the love of God and peace will be with you. He even warned the Galatians at, at the church of Galatia, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another, in Galatians chapter 5. And we, we read, I think it was last week, out of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, where Paul says that we're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which we call. And we talked about that last week, that we should walk with all humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for one another in love being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And he goes on and he says, there's just one body, there's one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And so when Paul begins chapter 2 of Philippians, unity is on his heart, kind of running through his, his veins and he has it on his mind. And I think true unity, true spiritual unity, as we're talking about this morning, is grounded in the Trinity in God itself. You know, you, you might want to ask yourself this question. Does, does Jesus ever look at his Father and say, hey, you know, I don't agree with you on this one. Or does the Holy Spirit say, you want me to go down there and do that? No, I don't think so. No, there's never any disunity within the Godhead, within the Trinity. Uh... In Colossians chapter 3, Paul writes to the church at Colossae, and as we went over this, he said, Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. See, when, you, when he says that, that implies that there's going to be reasons to forgive, which there are a multitude of reasons to forgive. Uh, bearing with one another. Um, Whoever has a complaint against anyone, he says, just as the Lord forgave you, so you should also, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And that unity is what Jesus prayed for in John 17, if you remember. Jesus said, May they be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. And that prayer was answered when? When the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. 
and he indwelt all the believers. Um, that essential unity of all believers in the body of Christ, because we have it, it's already there. It's not something we have to establish. We already have unity with one another. Um, it should affect the way we practice, the way we live, the way we treat each other. And so disunity among God's people on any level, deeply, I really believe, grieves the Lord and grieves the Spirit of Christ. Now, the enemy, on the other hand, the one main thing he wants to do is what? Yeah, conquer and divide, right? You know, I mean, he, he, you know, he's deceived. He thinks he can still win by some weird way. And so he's, he's out to do as much damage as he can. And that's why it's so important within the local church that we're on guard about that because we know that's what he's going to do. You know, we can go around the room and say, when's the last somebody offended you here at Grace Bible Church? You wouldn't have to think too long. I mean, none of us would because it happens every day. Not on a purposeful level, hopefully. But, I mean, we all get offended in different ways at different times. And, and we're called not to, to be divisive and, and, you know, get our little group over here and factious and begin bickering about each other and all that stuff because basically that's not going to help us grow spiritually. Uh, and when, it, when a church is made up of that kind of a spiritual uh, maturity level where that's where they're at, bickering and all this stuff is going on, they're spiritually weak. And you know they can't really be used to uh, to, to be a, a threat to the, the devil's work, first of all. And they have little power, if any, of advancing the gospel of Christ. And so we really need to maintain or restore and, and have that spiritual unity uh, within our own congregation. And I'm not saying we don't have that. I'm just saying we have to be on guard about that. Because we can have all the right doctrine, we have all the moral purity and all the the passion, passionate commitment to the gospel that we have, but we don't have unity with each other. We don't have anything. And so when Paul is talking here in Philippians chapter 2, he's not talking about doctrine. He's not talking about ideas. He's not even talking about uh, practices that are clearly unbiblical. See, I'm not saying this morning that we just need to, you know, group hug, you know, everybody get together and, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what your life's like or whatever. No, we're not talking about that. It's about interpretations. It's about standards. He's talking about interests here. He's talking about preferences. And a lot of that has to do with matters of personal choice. Uh, and, and such issue, issues are never to be controversial within, they are, but they shouldn't be brought up as controversial within the body of Christ because, you know what, there's a lot of things on this side of heaven that a lot of us don't have a complete understanding of. And so, you know, if we were to say, well, if, if you know, you have to believe this or else, now on the main doctrines, obviously, you know, you, you can't come in there and say, well, you know, I don't believe Jesus is God. Well, you know, I'm going to fight you on that one. Okay. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's certain issues that are very elementary to Christianity, but there's other ones that are, well, you know, um, should a man wear his hair past his ears? You know, it's crazy stuff like that. I mean, you might laugh because we're not a church that, that's like that, but there are some churches that are very much like that. There are some churches very much that, you know, they would never see their pastor on a Sunday morning in front of them preaching a sermon behind a pulpit without a tie on. 
And I didn't do that just for this illustration. I did it because we had a picnic today and it was hot. And I fought my wife all the way. I'm not wearing a tie today, so put something else that's nice. Last week I just didn't feel good in a tie because it was too hot. Um, You know, it doesn't matter. I mean, who cares? So we're not here to have a fashion show. Um, And so we're, we're never, believers are never to compromise doctrines or principles that are clearly biblical. I mean, we have to hold on to the truth. But on the other hand, you know, on the secondary issues, we, we should defer. We should humble ourselves and, okay, that's one viewpoint. Well, what's another viewpoint? And I think it's really a mark of maturity when you have that ability to back off and let somebody express their view and say, okay, great. You can believe that and still be a Christian. You know, that, that's not, a, that's not a, uh, a main doctrinal issue here. And so the unity that the word exalts is always inward. It's never outward. It's always internally desired. It's never really externally, you know, compelled, you might say. Because it's a spiritual unity. It's not just a, you know, ecclesiastical kind of a church like all the churches have to get together and agree with everything. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a spiritual unity. And it's really, it's, it's grounded in the spirit of Christ. It's spirit-motivated, it's spirit-empowered in the hearts and souls and minds of those who know Christ. And preserving that unity of the church is not an option. I mean, Ephesians 4.3 says that that's what we're to do. That's a command. That's not something that's optional. And so whenever we're given the opportunity to preserve unity in a relationship or within the church, we should always defer to that unity if it's not compromising a major doctrine. Now, I had an illustration this morning. It kind of fell apart because I forgot my marbles. But I was going to show you this morning, if you, if you stop and you think about it this way, if I had a bag of marbles here this morning, all right, you could look in this bag, you know, the fishnet, they kind of come in, and, and all the, the marbles may be different sizes and maybe different colors, all sorts of things, but they're held together by that bag. Now, if I take that bag and open it up and just kind of, you know, go like this, there's going to be marbles, and it's probably a good reason I, you know, didn't have these marbles here. They'd be all over the floor, and, you know, who knows what would happen. But, you know, we have insurance liability issues here. Yeah, I fell on a marble at church, you know. Um, But, you know, if I take them out of the bag, what happens to them? They're just scattered, all right? Now, it's kind of a, you know, that bag is ripped or torn or opened up, all those marbles scattered. Well, on the other hand, if you stop and you think about this, here's a, a little dish, and it's got a magnet in it. And inside this little dish, I have some nuts, bolts, all different sizes, bunch of different things. Okay, think of this as the church. All right, now these aren't in a bag, okay? Uh, the, the, the people who make up the body of Christ are not in a bag. They're in, in Christ. That's what we're called, right? So when I drop these in there, okay, I mean, I can drop on the table and they go all over, but if I drop them in there, what happens to them? I mean, they, they stay in there. Okay? And they're, they're together, even though they're different sizes, even though they're different shapes, they're held together because of the power of the magnet. And the reason they're held together because of the power of the magnet, who can tell me? Is because they're all made up of what? Metal. Okay? Now, if I put a piece of plastic in there, what's going to happen? It's going to fall out. Because it doesn't possess the element that attracts, that is attracted to the magnet. And so it's important to understand that the body of Christ, even though we're different shapes and sizes, we're made up of all the same spirit, the spirit 
of Christ, the Holy Spirit. And so when we're called to be together, even though we're different shapes and sizes, different personalities, we're held together by... Whoops. There, there, you, there you go, Robert. This one fell out of there. No. But you know, we're held together by the power of Christ. And that's such an important thing to understand. Okay? And I, and I think that it's, it's important to, to realize... You know, that, that when, we, when we talk about that, it's not just a, 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 a thing that, you know, well, yeah, we're all kind of made up different. No, we all have the same spirit. And by our nature, we're in Christ. And if something pulls that, 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 that bolt out of that thing, eventually, if I let it go, it's going to go back. Why? Because it's made up of the right properties that it collects, that the magnet attract, is, is attracted to. And so when we're divinely empowered, when we're divinely indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, all right, it doesn't matter what happens in our life, in our circumstances, whatever, we're, we're still there. Because Christ is the magnetic power that's holding us together. It's not our circumstances. And I think that that's a key point. If I put those nuts and bolts in just a regular bowl, what would happen if I turned it upside down? They'd all fall out. Why? Because there's no component there to hold them there. And when you look in, in Acts, you know, that unity was manifested after Pentecost. I mean, thousands of new believers came to Christ, and it says that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, first of all, to fellowship, and all those who had believed had all things in common together. They, they had breaking of bread and prayer. Day by day, they continued with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, and as they were taking their meals with gladness and sincerity of heart. See, their, their oneness in Christ is permanent. You, you can't take that away because you didn't start it. It's just like that bolt can't jump out of that thing. Why? Because the magnet holds it there. And I think that that's such an important point. And that's what, what Paul is talking about in Ephesians. He says, you know what? When, when, when we're subject to life's trials and things like that, sometimes we get a little frail. We get a little, maybe ragged around the edges. We get a little, you know, faint-hearted. But, you know what, it doesn't take us out of Christ. It, it basically says that we have to preserve that unity. And we're called to preserve it. We're not called to make that unity. In Ephesians 4.3, where he says that, that word means to make a persistent effort to preserve the unity and spiritual unity must be constantly cultivated. It must be constantly preserved by being selfless, by, by devotion and, and, and striving to do that for the Lord. Well, the, the church at Philippi was pretty much sound theologically. They knew what they believed. They were devoted to it. They were moral. They were loving. They were zealous. They were courageous, prayerful, generous, obviously. They helped Paul out on occasion. And yet they still had problem in one area. There was some discord brewing. With a couple people. Just a couple people. And that's all it takes. And such people, such troublemakers, can stir up the contention and strife. And all of a sudden, you have the whole body fractioned out. Everybody's in their little club. And because disunity is so debilitating, you know, Paul really has to, over and over again in his letters to churches, make sure that, you know what, we need to guard against this. We need to guard against it. And he had just expressed that to the Philippians in, in verse 
uh, 27. It says, conduct yourselves uh, worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come or whether I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so now in verse 1 and 1 through 4 of chapter 2, he carries on that same thought. That's why there in verse 1 he says, therefore. And that's the correct translation. Some translations say, if therefore. The correct translation of that verse is, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Well, here in the, in the first couple verses here, he kind of breaks it down. And he says, you know what, if you want spiritual unity in your life and in the body and in the church, you have to have three things. You have to have the right motives, the right marks, and the, and the right means or the right attitudes to carry these out. And so as you look through that, he really kind of points that out. Let's look at the first one, the right motivation for spiritual unity. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection or compassion and compassion, make my joy complete. Now, it's kind of important that he's coming off of what he just said in verse 27. Because he gave them a divine injunction that they should make sure that they're of one mind and one spirit and so forth. And we talked about that last week. But then you see their four ifs. If this, if that, you know, if there's consolation, if encouragement, Christ, if fellowship of love, if affection. Well, what's he saying? Well, you have to understand in the original language, that can mean a couple different things. In our language, it can even mean a couple different things. I could say... If I go to the park after church, uh, I'll see you at the picnic. Well, that what does that lead you to believe? I may not go to the park, right? Because I'm saying if I do. Well, really, in the Greek here, this is constructed in such a way. And, and this word if is always conditional, okay? But here in this case... It's called a first-class conditional clause. And you know, we don't need to get into all this. But basically what it means is if this condition is true, and it is, then, and he goes on, the following is true. That's the idea. It would be like me saying, you know, if I go to the park after church and I'm coming, I'll see you at the picnic. Well, that doesn't leave any doubt in your mind that I'll be there. All right? And so he's not saying... Well, do we have any consolation? Is there any consolation in Christ? He's not asking a question. He's making a statement here. And so, the therefore looks back to that principle in verse 27 when he says, make sure that you're of one mind and one spirit. And the if in verse 1 of chapter 2 looks forward to these four things that he shares with. The first two relate primarily to Christ, and the second two relate primarily uh, to the Holy Spirit. Look at the first one there. He says, the first motivation is that there is encouragement in Christ. That word encouragement means to come alongside of somebody, to give assistance by offering comfort, um, by offering counsel or exhortation. It's, it's the exact same kind of assistance 
that when, when Jesus spoke of the Good Samaritan, that's the kind of assistance we're talking about. That after doing everything he could for the robbed and beaten stranger, what did he do? Did he walk away? No. He took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper and he said, you know what? Take care of this guy. He needs some help. And whatever more you spend, I'll repay. He did more and above what was expected. And in a closely related word, Jesus uses the same word to refer to who? The Holy Spirit. He who comes alongside us as believers. And so the most important and powerful encouragement in Christ comes from us being indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. And that's really what his admonition is here. When he says in verse 27, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, be of one mind, of one spirit. You know, basically what he's saying is, shouldn't your divine influence of Jesus Christ in your life, because you are a Christian and you are indwelt by the Spirit of God, shouldn't that compel you to preserve the unity that's so precious to Him? Why would you want to do anything that would disrupt, uh, dis, dis, disrupt that, that you? unity that we have in Christ. We would never want to do that. That's the idea. Because we've been indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. And so, that encouragement is there. Also, he says, secondly, the consolation of love. Consolation means basically speaking close with someone. Speaking closely to somebody. Giving comfort uh, giving solace, it kind of plays off the, the previous word of encouragement. But they both, both of those words, consolation and encouragement, involve a close relationship. Marked by genuine concern and helpfulness. See, that's why when we come to church, I mean, it, it shouldn't just be to come and sit and hear somebody speak and sing some songs and go home. It should be, that's why we have a fellowship time afterwards, to get to know each other. To warm up to each other. So that you can begin to encourage and, and have consolation among yourselves. That's why we're called the body of Christ. That's why we come together to worship and to fellowship. I mean, I think sometimes, you know, we think that, we, well, the only time we ever should come to a church is if we're hearing a sermon or do a Bible study or whatever. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that always plays a part in it, but part of, you know, my motivation to even go to a picnic after church is to, what, get to know people. You know, to, to have some fun, to, to relax together. Um, and I know that that happens a lot in our body. A lot of you spend time together at uh, different times and you go out for to eat or whatever, and that's good. That's what the body of Christ should be doing. It's not just about Sunday go to meeting kind of a thing. And so he talks about this consolation of love. And you stop and you think about the love that Christ has bestowed on us. God has bestowed on us through, through Christ. And what he's saying is, you know what? God has just lavishly bestowed His love on you. Why aren't you showing it to others? Why aren't you passing that love on to others? That should just be a natural outgrowth of your salvation. That should be a, a demonstration of your gratitude to God. I mean, He didn't have to show you love. He could have showed you His wrath. But He didn't. Out of His grace and mercy, He called you and you accepted the call and came to know Him as your Lord and Savior. And now you're in the fold of Christ and you experience all the, the, the wonderful things that that makes, makes up in our lives. And, and, and we should show appreciation to God by showing that love to one another. The third motivation there is, it says, the fellowship of the Spirit. It says, not only is there consolation 
or encouragement in Christ, not only comfort of love, but there's also fellowship of the Spirit. And fellowship there really describes a partnership. It describes a mutual sharing. Um, you know, and our fellowship is intimate because every believer is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We all share the same Spirit. And when you stop and you think about that, what does that Spirit do for us? Well, if you, if you turn over to Ephesians, just real quick, we can look at this. Ephesians chapter 1, look at verse 13. Here's one thing the Spirit of Christ does for us. It says, In Him you also trusted, verse 13 of chapter 1 of Ephesians, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, and then it says this, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And he doesn't stop there. He goes on to 14. He says, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. What's that saying? If you're in Christ, you're, the Holy Spirit that indwells you is the guarantee, the seal of your eternal inheritance. It's not up for grabs. Very clear. And I think that it, it, it's so important to understand that the Spirit does that. It's also a source of spiritual power for us. In Acts, you can read that over and over in Acts 1.8. Um, it's a source of spiritual gifts for us in 1 Corinthians 12, in Romans 12. It's a source of spiritual fruit for us in Galatians 5. And so the Spirit even helps us when we don't know how to pray, Romans tells us, that He intercedes for us. And that text says, it's not talking about tongues, it's talking about, because it says, the Spirit intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. In other words, it can't even be uttered when the Spirit does that. And so the idea is, as believers, we're all indwelt by the same Spirit. So we have that fellowship of the Spirit. And that's why in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, Paul says, The grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And I think once we understand that, it helps us to realize, hey, you know what? We're all on the same team here. The fourth motivation here is that there's that of affection and compassion. That word affection comes from that word we talked about, uh, talks about the bowels or the, the inside here, kind of the, the seat of emotions. That's what he's talking about. And the, the, it's really kind of concerned, connected with a deep and longing uh, personal longing, especially for those who are dearly loved. That's the idea. And he doesn't say, if there is any. He's saying, well, since there is. You can almost translate that word, if, every time you say it there. See it here in this context because of the Greek construction. Just translate it since or because. Since there's fellowship of the Spirit, since there is affection and there is mercy or compassion, all those things should give us motivation then to make sure that we are preserving the unity. Now, there's a negative side to those, too. All four of those positive admonitions that he just gave you, there's also a negative side. You could not do those things. You know, you, you, if you're out of Christ, you're not going to have the consolation of Christ, the comfort of His love, fellowship of the Spirit, the affection of mercy. And I think even in 
in Christ, we can sometimes, uh, as we're kind of give over to the flesh and not the spirit, we get ourselves in trouble in those areas. But those four things there, he basically clearly marks that out. And he says in verse 2, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Fulfill my joy. Kind of a selfish thing for him to say, you might say. <laughs> well, who does he think he is? Well, no. He, he, he was their, their spiritual leader. He was concerned for them. And he said, hey, you know what? If you want to fulfill my joy, be of the same mind. If you want to, you know, if you want to make any church leader happy, just get along with each other. I mean, that, that makes us real happy. All right? Because most of the problems in the church are people not getting along. And you start just bickering back and forth, and, and it just kind of erodes into gossip, and, and the next thing, you know, and it goes downhill from there. And God just wants us to, to live lives that are pleasing to Him. So those are some of the motivations. What are some of the, 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 the attitudes or the marks, the marks here of, of spiritual unity? In verse 2 there, he says, being of the same mind. It means to think the same thing or to be like-minded. That's what he's saying. Uh, and he's not talking again, once again, here about doctrine. He's talking not necessarily even about moral standards. He's talking about a common understanding, a genuine agreement to get along with each other. In verse 5, he explains how to do that. He said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And you have to remember that believers can know the very mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, because we've been transformed. And when, when Paul, in, in chapter 3 here, he says, press on that I may lay hold of that which was laid hold of by Christ Jesus, to press on for the goal of the upward call of God in, in Christ Jesus. He's talking about that attitude. Having that same attitude that Christ had. I think if you, if you don't have your mind set on spiritual things, what do you have your mind set on? Earthly things. All right, and that's obviously uh, pretty clear. I mean, in, in uh, Philippians 4.8, Paul says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, pure, lovely, of good report, of good repute, if there's any excellence in anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Think on these things. That's what he's talking about. Be of the same mind on those things. In Romans chapter 8, Paul gives us some insight in regard to being the same mind. And in Romans 8, verses 4 and 5, he says there, uh, don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, in Romans 8, 4 and 5. For those who walk according to the flesh set their what? Their minds, it says, on the things of the flesh. But those who are, uh, who are walking according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. And so that's the first thing. If you want to be of the same mind, Paul says, set your things on the things of the Spirit. Think about the spiritual things. The second thing, he goes on there in verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 3. He also notes, if you want to preserve this unity and you want to be of the same mind, he says in 12.3, he says, we're not to think more highly of ourselves than he ought to think. Uh, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. We ought to not do that. And it's, it's kind of a uh, uh, you know, puffed up person he's referring to. But to think so as to have sound judgment, just as God has allowed it to each a measure of faith. 
And so God calls us together as the body of Christ, and those motivations are very clear. And the first attitude is of being of the same mind. And that's what we have to continually work on. The second mark of spiritual unity there in Philippians is maintaining the same love. He says in verse, uh, verse 2, being like-minded, having the same love. And what he's talking about is to have the same love is, is to love others equally. Um, now, if you stop and you think about it, just on a purely emotional level, that's totally impossible. Nobody in this room could say, oh, I love everybody the same. No, we all look different, we all act different, we all have different personalities. Some of our personalities turn each other off, some of them, you know, we're attracted to. And so, you know, there's no way that in the flesh we could, oh, I just love everybody. That's a lie. Because we all have preferences. But he's not talking about that kind of love. He's not talking about an emotionally driven, infatuative kind of love. He's talking about agape love, which as we talked about before, is a will or a love of what? The will. It's a love of choice. So can I choose to love all you the same? Yeah. I could do that. I couldn't do it in the flesh. I'd have to ask God's help. Just like you'd have to ask God's help to love me. But it's, it's a love based on choice. And it's a love that can be commanded. See, that's why it's so, it's so important to understand when you come together as a husband and wife, and you recite marriage vows to you. Now, the day that happens, you're probably have butterflies in your stomach and you're feeling all gushy and gushy and everything. But you know what? You know, 5, 10, 15 years into this deal, I guarantee you that the gushy and gushy feelings are not what they were the first day. They're just not. You know, I mean, things change. Now, I'm not saying that you don't have gushy and gushy feelings for each other and, you know, you're not all that. That's fine. But they're not the same. There's something happens when you make that commitment to, to each other and you're married. And all of a sudden you realize, wow, this is it. For the rest of my life, this is it. Praise God. You know, and, and, and you're, yeah, it's, it's kind of a, you know, it's a statement of faith. You're saying, okay. You know, and you are. It's, 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 especially in our society today. Marriages are falling apart left and right. I mean, you, when you walk down the aisle and get married, it's a step of faith. But it's also... A step of choice. You're choosing to love someone. You're choosing to marry someone. And see, it depends on what attracts you to that person as to whether that choice is going to be valid. Because if what attracts you to the person is just what you see on the outside, you're going to be sorely mistaken a few months into the relationship. That's why it's important you know, to take time, get to know each other, and, and really, you know, to understand, you know, get to see that person in every situation. So you know, so there's, you know, there's still going to be surprises, but you know, it's good to, to go through that and read some books together and counseling or whatever and, and get some help. And, you know, to not do that, I, I, it's just kind of a, you know, it's a big deal. It's a big step. But he, he's saying here that, you know what, this agape love is, is not a, according to preference or attraction. It's an intentional love to seek the welfare of the one that it's loving. And so we can all look around the room and say, you know what, I'm going to choose to love each other, be the same mind, but also have that same love for each other. That's what he's talking about. And it also not only stays within the body of Christ, it even reaches out to outside the body of Christ. This is 
a love that can be expressed to non-Christians as well. And I think the church sometimes uh, definitely misses that point. You know, we're good on loving, on, live up, loving up on each other, but boy, when we get outside these four walls and, you know, some nut, you know, cuts us off in traffic, well, you know, look out. You know, they're not going to get that kind of love. So, I mean, it's important that we, we even work on, on that area. And that's what First John chapter 3 says. It says, we know that we have passed out of life into death because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death, he says very clearly. So we need to have that, that love for each other. A third mark of spiritual unity there is being united in the Spirit. This isn't the Holy Spirit as we talked about before. It's talking about being one, one soul, um, one spirit. Um, being united is to live in harmony with fellow believers. And if they're controlled by humility and they're controlled by love, they'll be genuinely united in our our souls or in our our spirits. Human spirits is what he's talking about there. In the fourth mark, he goes on, a spiritual maturity is being intent on one purpose. And it's kind of a a natural companion to the, 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 the previous three. It just happens that way. If you take a team of people and you work together at something and, and you, know, you, you, you have the same mind and you have the same relationship with each other and you begin to work together as a team, well, when, it, when you sit down and say, what's our purpose? Sometimes it's almost automatic. I mean, it, it just kind of flows. Why? Because you know each other so well and you've worked together. And that's the idea here. This is an outgrowth of these other three, of being of one mind, of one love, of one spirit, and then one purpose. Literally means thinking one thing. Thinking one thing. Having the same mind almost. It's kind of almost a circle. It goes right back into it. It folds right back into the, the previous three. I want you to turn over as we close. We'll finish this next week. In Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And I just want us to look. I just want to read for you verses 12 through 16. Because he kind of summarizes all these spiritual marks of spiritual unity right here in in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 16. He says, Therefore is the elect of God, holy and beloved, and then he begins, Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another even as Christ forgave you, so you must do. It's not an option. Verse 14, But above all things put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you were also, to also which you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of, word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. In whatever you do, in word or deed, and this is the important principle, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And if we practice those things, that unity is just going to overflow, not only in our own lives and our families, but in our church. And what a wonderful picture for a lost and dying world to see. Let's close in a word of prayer.
the worship team comes. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I thank you that you've clearly given to us marks of spiritual unity and, and attitudes that we need to possess. And Lord, I pray that you would really show each and every one of us where we fall short at times. We all do. None of us are perfect. And so, Lord, we pray that you would encourage us to walk in the Spirit each and every day. And Lord, that we would make that choice that to have that agape love for each other. And that we'd be on constant guard against any disunity. Lord, it's, it's, it so easily creeps in. And Father, we just pray that we would be willing to at times guard our mouth, guard our tongue, guard our thoughts, Lord, that they would be pleasing to You. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't quite understand what it means to be in Christ, they don't feel the pull of the magnet because they don't have the Spirit. They're not being held together by the love of Christ with the rest of the body. Lord, I pray that You would reveal Yourself to them. That they would cry out to You and repent of their sin. Come to You afresh and, and ask You to forgive them. To restore the right relationship that they should have with You. And Father, we thank You and we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.